Welcome to the Small Business Buzz. I'm your host, attorney and entrepreneur, Kimberly Hamlin. Today I'm talking about how you can document your own simple business agreements without an attorney, and the four things you need to make sure you have in those agreements when you do it yourself. And we have Jennifer Kinesny, patent attorney with Wingspan Law, here to talk with us about intellectual property rights for small businesses and what you need to know as a startup and what you need to know as your business matures. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Okay, today I'm talking about a way to document your simple agreements without an attorney. I know how it is. For a small business, it's not always cost-effective to bring in a lawyer to create a contract for every deal you want to do. And really, some deals are relatively simple, and you should be able to negotiate the terms yourself. The important thing, well, aside from the terms of the deal itself, is to get the the deal documented in a way that you can use later, if you need to. I mean, evidentiary, in court. You don't have to create a fancy document that's full of legal jargon to have that support that you need if a conflict were to arise. A simple and hassle-free way to document the terms of your agreement is simply to write an email that says something to the effect of, Hey, it's my understanding that these are the terms of our agreement. Is that your understanding also? If they respond that it is, great. Save that email. If not, at least now you know that you're not quite on the same page as much as you thought. And you can keep working on the terms until you really have reached an agreement. It's better to know on the front end that you weren't really on the same page. It's so much worse when you guys start doing business and then one of you lets the other one down because all of your expectations weren't aligned. Okay. So that's an easy way to document the agreement. What's just as important is getting the agreement to be clear and defined and comprehensive with everything you need. Here's the things you're going to want to make sure you cover in all of your agreements. Now, keep in mind that you don't have to say it in the way it would be written if a lawyer wrote it. Plain language that everyone can understand really is best. The first thing you're going to get down is the scope of the agreement. What I mean by that is who's doing what, where it's taking place, and sometimes even why the deal is being done. Believe it or not, the why or the purpose for the deal can be just as important as the rest of it. Imagine that you're having someone create a website for an event that is happening on a specific day. Then, for some reason, like maybe the web designer gets the flu. He doesn't get the website complete and launched before the date of your event. When the web designer gets over the flu, you really don't want the website anymore at that point. The reason why you needed it has already passed. So don't forget to include the purpose of the agreement as part of your terms. Here's another thing. Make sure you have the performance tied to some measurable result or have it that the task has to be done to a specific person's satisfaction. Otherwise, they may think they're performed and you might disagree. You guys have left an ambiguity there, so a conflict arises. 
We don't want that, so make the terms of performance very clear. Next, set out time frames. Time frames for what is happening when, and time frames for when payments will be made. Speaking of payments, however payments are going to be made and the consequences for missing payments, that needs to be detailed. Then, put in there provisions about how disputes will be handled. Are you going to go to mediation or arbitration instead of court? Or if you're going to go to court, are you limiting the places where the case can be brought? If you're both in the same town, that might not be as big a deal. But if you're in different towns, you'll definitely want to get a handle on that. It's also good to say what laws apply if there's a dispute, especially if the people you are doing business with are from a different state, or if the business has been incorporated or organized in another state. This is really common, since many businesses register in Delaware or Nevada because their laws are more favorable for business, well, at least for big business, than some other states. Oh yeah, and don't forget to put in there that if a dispute is handled by a legal process, that the losing party pays the attorney's fees and costs for the winning party. That can only happen by agreement, with some exceptions that don't apply here, of course. And having that attorney fee provision tends to tamp down on frivolous running to court and tends to encourage working things out. This is a good framework for simple agreements. Don't hesitate to bring in a lawyer for more complex agreements, though. Complex agreements that have a lot of moving parts or that involve maybe larger sums of money. Whatever you pay the attorney for the contract will be well worth it. In those cases, not having an attorney can be way, way more expensive. For certain types of agreements that you enter into regularly, like a client service agreement or a certain type of vendor agreement, for example, you may want to work with an attorney in getting a really good solid template agreement worked out that you can use over and over. For client service agreements or product purchase agreements, you can even create them so that they showcase all of your products and services. So they can not only be a contract to protect your business, but also a sales and marketing tool for upselling and cross-selling. If you'd like to know more about documenting your own agreements, be sure to check out my blog post today. The link is on my show notes, or you can find it on my website at khanlonlaw.com. That's K-H-A-N-L-O-N-L-A-W.com. And while you're at it, sign up for my bi-weekly business newsletter. In each newsletter, I have articles that'll help you in running your business, and sometimes I have bonus materials for you to download for free. In the upcoming newsletter, I'll have a free guide on documenting business agreements that you can download. So it's perfect timing if you thought this podcast was particularly useful to you. Okay, up next is my interview with Jennifer Kinesny. Life of an entrepreneur is a never-ending struggle to sharpen that competitive edge that will place your business ahead of the competition. Fortunately, the shape of the average workplace has changed. Finding that fine balance struck between cost efficiency and excellence is now easier than ever. We need help when we need help, but we don't need to be burdened with full-time staff. That's where Astute Business Concierge can help you. Astute Business Concierge. More than just smart, astute. Visit us on the web at astutebusinessconcierge.com to see how we could help you.
Okay, so we're here with Jennifer Kinesny with Wingspan Law. She's a patent attorney, and she also does other intellectual property law for business owners. Thank you for being here, Jen. Thanks for having me, Kimberly. It's so great um, to have a patent attorney who works for small businesses. Most of the patent attorneys I know tend to try to focus on large-scale corporations. So it's really great to have a resource for the small and medium-sized guys. I totally agree. So how did you end up transitioning from working for the big guys to doing work for small and medium-sized businesses? Well, it's interesting. I, you know, I went to work in a big firm, went to work in a smaller firm, and we did work for very large companies. And um, the work was interesting. It was a great, great way to learn the practice of patent law, trademark law. But I realized that there were aspects of myself I wasn't getting to implement in my professional life. And I learned about myself over the years that I'm a very entrepreneurial person. And I think first like a business person and really second like a lawyer. And so I needed a place to really grow that aspect of myself. And I realized how I could do that is if I were working with small businesses where I could get in their world, talk to them, and use that part of my brain that is like that part of their brain and just bridge the gap and finding meaning of the minds and get to do the law in a way that is just way more practical. Why do we do this? Because it's useful for your business. Why do you use patents? Because they're assets for your company. Why do you protect trademarks? Because they're assets for your company. They add value. And so when you're working with the larger companies, they have internal business people that do that. Um, there's just more of a need to perform the activities of law. And so that sort of was the impetus for me to make that move to working with small businesses. And I'm guessing that you have found it to be way more rewarding. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been so fun. It's been so much more fun to really get to know my clients' businesses. I mean, I realize what I know about myself now that I didn't know then is that I am a visionary person. I'm a pioneering person. And so Anytime I get to work with inventors or creative types or pioneering type startup companies, I get to be a part of their dream. I get to hear about it. I get to help them make it become a reality. So it is highly satisfying. And um, I'm just very grateful and privileged to be able to do it. That's awesome. Yeah. For those who might not know the difference between um, a patent or a trademark or a copyright or, or even a service mark, um, can you give people a little quick and dirty tutorial on that? Definitely. It's really interesting. I, I will have people come to me all the time who have said, oh, I was talking to my friend and they said I need to trademark that. Or I was talking to my uh, business partner and they had mentioned that we might want to patent that. And most of the time, they're not aware of which IP bucket, if you will, that particular idea or thing falls into. And so it's fun to be able to say, Okay, well, I know that that's what you think that means. I'm, I'm always great with people. I don't, you know, they don't know. And so that's why they're talking to me. And so, you know, they'll come to me and I'll say, well, what is the thing that you're talking about? And so they'll say, oh, well, I've got this invention or I've got this idea. Well, right away I'm thinking there's definitely a potential patent there. It depends on whether or not it's patentable and at what stage of development the idea or concept is. And so then there's the, the people that come to me and say, I need to do something with this. I think I need a patent or I think I need a trademark. And I say, well, what is it? And they say, well, I've got this logo I'm developing. 
or um, I'm looking at developing a new product, and the product, we're trying to come up with a name for the product. Well, logos and, and words are trademarkable. Those are trademark protection and subject to trademark protection. And then there's the terminology of trademark versus service mark that you mentioned. And so service marks are, well, there's really two classes of trademarks when you're looking for protection. One is goods and one's the services. And typically it's trademarks that are covering goods, although you can use trademarks universally for both goods and services. Service mark then is strictly for services that are associated with the trademark. So copyrights have more to do with the expression of an idea. So something that's written up, um, a book, a document, a record, a recording, those are all subject to copyright protection, and those have to do with literally the thing as it's expressed in the world. And so and copyright protection usually comes with instant rights. Um, you can always put a circle, the little circle C to show that you're holding out something as a copyrighted material, but you don't necessarily have to formally protect it as far as registering it with the you know, federal U.S. Copyright Office. So. And isn't that true as well of, of trademark, the TM? However, only a registered trademark gets to use the little R in a circle. Yes. And a lot of times I've had to coach my clients on that because they'll go ahead and implement the circle R. And then I'll look at their website or their promotional materials and say, oh, you've already trademarked this. And they say, oh, no, we're just, you know, we want people to know we're trying to use it as a trademark. And I say, well, until you get that registration, you're going to want to use a little TM or a little SM if it's a service mark to indicate that you are holding it out as a protected trademark, which you automatically do have some trademark rights as soon as you start using something in the marketplace. But then in order to get that circle R, you need to go ahead and file a trademark application with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and they'll eventually issue you a certificate of registration, at which time you can implement the Circle R. Sometimes I have people come to me, and they will have already said, oh, we picked out this great name, and we're ready to go with it. And then before we, before I even, you know, register with the Secretary of State and start doing all the, all the legal documents that I need to do on my end, I'll go ahead and, and do that search to make sure that we're not going to be violating anybody else's intellectual property rights. And I'll find something out there and I'll say, oh, hey, we need to do something a little bit different or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so many times people say, oh, well, I already did the graphics or we already right. have a website. or So I know exactly what you mean where <laughs> you yes. go on your client's website and you're like, what? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I would say if there was one piece of advice I could give to people that are opening a business of any kind, or if you're looking to launch a product or something, you really, it is in your best interest to have a trademark search done. And that is something that most times they don't know about. Um, just to make sure it's not already being used in, associated, in association with your services or goods um, that you're planning on using it with. And um, it's just to get a clearance search as peace of mind. So at least you know, even if you don't want to take formal steps to protect it, you know that no one else is using it or doing it. Yeah, because the damages can be very, very high. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, in this day and age, with uh, it becoming so easy to find information about other people via the Internet, you know, doing Google searches, everything comes up. You can be found easily and you can find others easily. So... You know, some clients I have, they will, I'll even tell them, if, even if you don't want me to do a search, go do a search on Google or go use some search engine to see if there's anyone out there that's doing business. I mean, it's one step they can take that will take them about 30 seconds to find out if someone else is doing it, just to give them a little bit of a heads up. 
so that they're not, you know, going into territory where, you know, they'll spend all this money on marketing, they'll spend all this money on logo development, and that they could have had a trademark clearance for probably considerably less than they even pay for the marketing and promotional materials. Oh, absolutely. And then later they've spent all that money, and they might have to go and completely scrap it. Yeah. Another area of intellectual property law that doesn't, I suppose, often come to mind, but is equally important is trade secret law. And I Mm -hmm. suppose that's because there's nowhere that you actually register a trade secret. You just have to handle it properly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, um, you know, trade secrets are, it's anything that a business wants to protect. It could be a formula. It could be a process, something that's difficult to reverse engineer. Um, and, and it can be a client list. It can be a client list. Absolutely. And so what you need to do internally is take certain steps to show that you have a regular business practice of making that information confidential or inaccessible in order to hold it out as a trade secret. Again, there's not something you can do from a filing standpoint or a federal protection standpoint to, you know, you can't file something like you can with a trademark or a patent. It's something that you have to have consistent internal business practices to show that you are intending it to be a trade secret. Yeah. Yeah. And you need to put those practices into place Mm -hmm. in the front end Absolutely. Yeah. And make sure that there's some sort of an, a policy with employees. Um, it could be something in the employee handbook. It could be an, an agreement that people sign. It could be a standard operating procedure that's part of handling a particular thing. And so you just have to show that you are consistently, as a general business practice, implementing whatever those policies are that you've put in place in order to prove that you have done everything you can to protect that trade secret from being misappropriated. So as a business, in its startup phase, has certain sort of intellectual property needs. And then as it grows, those needs kind of shift and change. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that a bit. Okay. Yeah, I think one of the things I would say about startups, having worked with several different um, companies, is I think startups often have really not taken into consideration how much they might have to spend on their legal services up front especially if it's a startup technology company, um, something where you're going to be, you know, purchasing equipment or getting investors immediately to get something off of the ground, you're going to probably need to have quite a budget set aside just for, you know, incorporation, partnership agreements, potentially investor agreements of various natures, um, supplier agreements, independent contractor agreements, service agreements, lots and lots of contracts probably up front. You're also potentially going to be looking at patent protection, for sure, depending on what the technology area is. And so I think a lot of startups, they have, you know, great vision, great ideas, and it can be a big shock to find out they might need to spend, you know, twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 right out of the gate just to make sure that on paper they are adequately mitigating risk and protecting assets and setting up an, a business entity to make sure that they're, that everyone that's in ownership is protected. And so, um, I mean, those are the kind of, in my estimation, are the initial challenges. One of the biggest challenges I've also seen with high technology companies or startup, I'm thinking of things like mobile apps or um, tracking types of technologies, things that use GPS systems. You have to probably do some due diligence around um, what's already on the market as far as patent protection or things that other entities might own. And that's also something that's often overlooked. And doing any sort of a clearance on a patent can be extraordinarily expensive. And so that's something where I've had clients who have been contacted by what is called a patent troll. 
It's a term that probably people are hearing more and more about. They're also known as non-practicing entities, NPEs. And what patent trolls do is they have um, gotten very broad patent protection on a particular thing like a barcode or some sort of um, GPS, for example, technology. And they have got broad patent protection, and a lot of times that that patent has been litigated. So it's actually been validated as a valid patent. And now they'll um, they'll go around and not even have a business in place. What they're in existence for, their non-practicing entity, is to go around and get licensing fees from companies that they assert are violating their patent rights. And so that can be a very frequent problem for startup companies. And um, it can be extremely expensive. And so that's one of those things where you do need to engage an attorney to find out what can we do, what should we do to try and get ahead of this, just so we understand what's out there. And um, what are the risks if we don't do a search? What are the risks if we just proceed with this? You know, someone does contact us. I had a client who had to, there was a licensing program set up for this particular entity. And they had um, had cases against two very big corporations and one. They decided that they needed to um, they needed to just pay the licensing fee. They had to pay ten thousand dollars to this company to basically pay for a license to operate. Well, ten thousand dollars is a whole lot less than patent litigation for you sure. Got that right. And so, on the one hand, it was a relief to the client because they knew they had a license and they knew that this had already been vetted. This whole situation had been vetted, so they knew no one else was coming after them. So they were happy to actually pay this fee. They were not happy that they didn't know about it, but it would have been extremely more expensive to try to litigate and win that situation. It could have been something that closed their doors because it would be so expensive. So, yeah. yeah. And to answer the second part of your question, um, as companies are growing, as they are starting to mature, um, they're starting to be profitable, they can start to look at other, like, what can we do now to... Because um, as you're producing things, as you're doing research and development, um, as you're launching products, you're starting to create trademark assets. I call them assets because they do add value to your company. Um, if you were ever to sell it, all the goodwill that's associated with those trademarks has a value. And there are people that do valuations. That's their job to determine what the value of those assets are when it comes time to sell the business. Even with patents, um, the interesting thing about patent law, there have been some changes as of March 2013. Uh, it used to be that the U.S. patent system would, um, they honored a first-to-invent type of system. So whoever invented an invention first had the rights to it. Now the system has switched to a first-to-file system. So one of the things that becomes particularly tricky for business owners is they can't now just sit on a lab notebook and keep it confidential and know and hope that they invented first. Now it's a little bit of a race to the patent office. And so... If you do have things that you're working on, you really, it is in your best interest to invest in a patent and think about your core business and where you're headed so you can make those sorts of decisions about what should we seek to patent, what shouldn't we seek to patent. And knowing that if you at any time are making this information public, you have, um, your ticking clock is one year basically to the time you have to file a patent. So in the case when somebody is developing something, and it is sort of a race to the patent office. Mm -hmm. Is it a benefit to them to file a provisional patent? Absolutely. And in fact, I think everyone should file a provisional first anyways. The reason being a provisional filing is so much less expensive than the non-provisional that will eventually follow it. And it is 
a great opportunity to put something on file so that you have a patent pending status. And from there, a lot of times, there's still development that needs to happen on a product. And so you have time to decide how you want to round out your patent, what sorts of claims you want to make in the patent. So it's always advisable to do a provisional filing. It is so much less expensive, even for um, now the patent office, at the time they made these changes to the law, they also changed um, their fee structure. And now they um, permit a micro-entity fee. They used to just have small entity and large entity status. And now they have micro-entity fees, which are considerably less fee and fees um, for certain people that fit a certain criteria criteria, such as um, people under a certain income level, um, entities that are a certain amount of employees. And so that's kind of a nice development as well to save some cash on those filings. And my understanding is that while a, a full patent, the drawings and all that that have to be submitted are incredibly detailed and technical, and you have to have every single aspect um, captured, that on a provisional patent, I mean, it could be a sketch on a, on a cocktail napkin. Exactly. Yeah, it's still important to have as much information as you want there, but you, you literally could draw a stick figure of a person with, you know, so I've seen some interesting drawings, and as long as they capture the, like, the different elements of the invention that they want to protect, that's enough information. I mean, you absolutely could submit a cocktail napkin. You don't have to have claims. You really, the requirements for a provisional application is you have to have a patent cover sheet and you have to have a specification, which is really the description of the invention. That could include drawings, it could include words, it could include um, aspects of the invention. And so as long as you've got kind of the, the most important elements you're trying to protect therein, it can be a very simple, very quick filing. Absolutely. If somebody does have something that they think we might need to protect this, especially since we're now a first-to-file jurisdiction, mm -hmm. and they say, okay, let's go ahead and get that provisional patent in. How long do they have to follow it up with the full application? The full application needs to be filed within a year of that, that provisional filing date. And so um, one of the things that, I've, that can happen is you, if I've had clients before who've come to me and said, oh, you know, I want to file, I want to keep this thing going but I just don't, I'm still developing it. I, I still I don't really have the funds to start pursuing a full application. One of the things that they can do is if they haven't made the invention public and they haven't published the provisional application, which the with patent office never publishes, it remains confidential, they could elect to refile their provisional. And that starts the year again, as long as it's remained confidential. What they will do is they'll lose the filing date. So they run the risk that someone else will come behind them and get the patent rights. And so, but it is an option. It's better than nothing if they're willing to take the risk of refiling the provisional. Um, but they do typically have a year from the date of the provisional to file the non-provisional. When I've had startups come and talk to me, oftentimes we're looking at, okay, are we going to go ahead and look to trademark protect either the name of their brand and their logo, or even sometimes the, if they have a specific name for a product or a process that is unique to them. And sometimes in the balance, I say, yeah, this is really worth going forward and protecting. And sometimes I say, well, let's hold up and wait and see, because there's that automatic common law protection. Mm -hmm. And if a business isn't ever going to grow beyond the borders of 
its locality, then they may not need that level of protection. Correct. Have you ever, I shouldn't say have Talked a client out of filing for a trademark? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, there are times where, um, for a number of different reasons, it could be that the, that their branding, their trademark, their product name is probably not going to be eligible for trademark protection because it's generic or it's um, merely descriptive. Those are uh, different criteria for trademark, or it's a, it's a spectrum consideration when it comes to trademarks. Something can be anywhere from generic in that it describes the goods exactly to what's called arbitrary and fanciful on the other end where it doesn't say anything about the product or it's a made-up word. One of those made-up words back in the day was Kodak or Xerox. Those were made-up words. They were considered arbitrary and fanciful, and therefore it was considered a strong trademark. Companies tend to go with, how do I describe this so people will know what it is? And that actually tends to make it a weaker trademark, which you well know. Um, but in those instances, I definitely have said to the client, well, you know, you're probably safe to continue to use this. Um, you're probably safe in the fact that no one would ever come after you for trademark infringement because you could argue it's simply merely descriptive of other goods or it's generic or, um, and it's probably not in your best interest to try to get the registration because the trademark office might not even let you register it for those reasons. That would be one example. Another example would be if you are strictly doing business in the state of Minnesota. For example, if you're a restaurant here and you don't have restaurants outside of the state, you're not shipping goods or t-shirts or mugs or anything across state lines, you actually wouldn't be able to get a trademark registration because you have to be engaged in interstate commerce in order to be eligible for trademark protection at the federal level. Now, once you get that registration, you have protection in all 50 states of the United States. But in that instance, it's one of those questions you want to ask. Will you be branching beyond Minnesota? Because you have to be able to say truthfully that you're doing business outside the state at some point in order to get the registration. Mm -hmm. Or you intend to. Mm -hmm. Or you intend to, exactly. And so, and yeah, and then there are cases where it's not in their budget or, you know, they're making a decision between whether they can make payroll next week and whether or not they're going to file for trademark registration. And payroll is always more important. Absolutely. So yeah, there there are a number of instances where I have encouraged, encouraged clients away from filing for federal protection. So I also have people sometimes come to me and say, Oh, I made this wonderful thing. I think I should register a copyright. And one of the things that I look at is, do they need copyright protection beyond what is automatically given? When it comes to copyright law, we automatically are handed a whole bundle of rights, Mm -hmm. um, even without registering. Yes. (laughs) Is there a question? No, there's not a question. Okay, let me start again. I agree with you. (laughs) So sometimes people are disappointed that I'm talking them away from some sort of registration, like, oh, I must be leaving them vulnerable. Will you, as the intellectual property expert, tell people in the podcast world why that is that I keep saying, no, we don't need to register that for you? Because you're saying it because you really don't. We don't. And frankly, it would be cost prohibitive for them to go ahead and get the formal protection because what they're going to pay, and I think the filing fee is quite inexpensive to get a formal registration, maybe $60 or $100 or something like that. As you will note, I haven't filed one for so many years that I'm not quite sure what the fee is at this point. But to pay for an attorney to handle that, 
it just doesn't make financial sense because they already have the protections inherent to what they've created because that's the way that the copyright aspect of IP works. They already have the protection, so they don't need to do anything extra. No. So thank you. I'm going to send my people okay. to listen to this podcast when they keep saying, are you sure? Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> okay. So as a business grows, this is what I see as a shifting intellectual property need as a business grows. Mm -hmm. When they're start, when they start up, they may not have necessarily the processes down and the customer list and all that to have trade secrets. And they may not have developed their, their product or had unique names for their processes that those sort of things get developed later. Mm -hmm. So I find that people have greater, believe it or not, greater needs for a trademark and that sort of protection as a business grows and yes. trade secret protection as a, as a business grows than they do when they're in, in the startup phase. Absolutely. And one of the things that I've talked with different companies about when they're getting started, because typically I will have someone reach out to me when they're in the early phases of their business and we start having this dialogue about the very thing you're just talking about. So we're talking about where they're at then. Then there's the future of where they're going to be at as they grow. And so part of what I like to do is establish the relationship with the client early on, even if they don't know they're, that they're going to need something right away. We might at some point say, let's touch base in the next six months to a year. Tell me how you're doing. And we might want to sit down and come up with a strategy for as you're growing, as you as soon as possible, and help their, the client to see that when the funds become available and when it makes sense, let's put a strategy in place. Let's start talking then about what you're working on and we'll kind of hit the ground running as we go. We can have a plan for you. We can talk about, you know, what sort of budget are you going to want to consider in the next year? What direction are you headed in? Let's talk about how you can start implementing best practices, getting lab notebooks up to speed, starting to work with marketing people who are going to, you know, help you develop things. And when you're starting that process, you definitely want to engage a lawyer at that point to make sure that whatever they develop for you is actually available for use and registration, those sorts of things. So I think a lot can be said for starting that communication as early as possible and helping the client to feel good about engaging that attorney at a later time so that they can plan a strategy and make it be very impactful and effective and cost-effective. So Definitely it's more cost-effective when they go and do it beforehand rather mm -hmm. than not having the protection in place. I have this one particular client that I sometimes struggle with in that he says, I have this thing coming up, and I say, okay, we need to do what we need to do to get it protected. And as you know, sometimes that means having the conversation with you mm -hmm. about what is our strategy going to be as far as that's concerned. And then he has a tendency to say, okay, We'll schedule the appointment, but between actually getting him in and to do what we need to do, then he goes and he blabs to the world about what it is that he's developing. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It and I think that's a tendency that happens with a lot of people. They get excited about what they're creating and then they want to tell the world, or not the world, but they all the people around them, yes. and then it it defeats the purpose of the protections they're wanting to put in place. Yes. It can make things very difficult. And I would say whenever I'm working with a new person, we sort of have that conversation right out of the gate. If I know that they're working on an invention, something that would have patent protection, I do everything I can to tell them 
you know, live and via email to say, don't talk with anyone about this. And if they come to me and say, oh, well, I just sent a sample of such and such off to my old business partner. I'll say, okay, when did you send it? Yesterday. Great. Then we're filing a provisional application today (laughs) to make sure. (laughs) Yeah. Because of the new rule change. And, you know, worst cases, you know, they they learn a hard lesson. Okay, that now you've you may potentially lose your rights to this. You may, you know, and hopefully they'll only do that once. And so, you know, the different clients are have different personalities, and sometimes, you know, what you think should be their priorities are not their priorities, and so they really do have to be the ones in the driver's seat. And then all you can do is help them understand what are their options based on the facts as it exists today. So, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is what you did, and this is the situation we're in now. Yes. So how yep. do we move forward? Yep, exactly. And so, but I think, too, that, um, you know, without getting on too much of a soapbox about it, I think the reason more people don't engage a lawyer early in that process we talked about is because a lot of attorneys, they're very, they're very geared towards the work product, the actual substantive law and what they can do for you, the, the thing, the tool, and um, they aren't necessarily thinking like a business person. So the challenge of that is the client, rightfully so, won't call the attorney because all they know is the attorney can do that piece of work for me, but I don't need that right now. So I guess I won't call them until I need that. Well, then by the time they know they need it, it might be too late. Uh, they may or may not need that particular thing. And if they don't have someone coming in to speak to that, that can help them make meaningful decisions based on their business objectives, then it just becomes a frustrating, disconnected, not communicating kind of process. And so I think small business owners are served well to, you know, do their homework, informationally interview different law firms and see if they can find that business advisor who's also going to be thinking about their intellectual property interests. Well, and as you said, that that business advisor, not somebody who just is going to triage mm-hmm. you in your business when you're in crisis, but somebody who you can call and say, hey, this is what I have coming down the pike. This is what I'm thinking about doing. What landmines potentially are ahead that I can circumnavigate? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think one of the other things that you know lawyers have kind of a reputation for is always being the no person. They're always the one who's saying no. And so as an attorney, I when I say no, I really mean no. <laughs> you know, I try to be a yes for my clients. I try to say, well, what's really important to you? And maybe we can make that work, but here are the risks that you're assuming if we go that route. And so, again, being that business advisor, forward. So, Well, and I think you and I are both um, very similar in that we come from creative backgrounds. Of course, yours is creative in the scientific world mm-hmm. and mine is creative in the design world. But because I come from that background, when somebody comes to me and says, hey, I want to do this deal, I'm always looking for, okay, how can we make that happen? And of course, I have to tell them these are the risks and you know, here's the pros and here's the cons. But I look from the perspective of let's make this deal happen safely instead of well, how can all, how, what are all the ways that this deal can go wrong? And let me CYA as best we can. Yes. Which I think is different than a lot of attorneys. I think that's true. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think the clients just want to be able to do business. 
They want to be able to do their business. They want to be freed up to be able to focus on their business. And so I think it's just so important to partner with them in that and be for their business growth and help them to know your priority is that they are meeting their business objectives, that they're meeting their goals. And then you come in with, here are the tools, here are the things we can implement to get you there. And it it needs to be a strategic thing, especially for small businesses, because they have to watch their bottom line. And kind of the order of small businesses I've noticed this with startups that I've worked with is they want to keep the doors open. They need to pay their vendors. They need to pay their suppliers. They need to pay their people. And they need to make sure that they can stay open. And so everything else comes after that. You know, and it can feel like very luxurious to spend your dollars on legal things because it starts to feel like it's just not a pressing matter until it's really a pressing matter. And so when you can engage them about the strategy and say, I'm going to help you know when it really is worth spending the money on and when it really isn't. And so ultimately it's their decision and you help them with, here's your options. Here are the potential outcomes of those options. But ultimately, I mean, it just, I think it's so much more helpful to the thriving of small businesses and the possibility of them becoming very successful if they know when and when not to spend that money. I agree. I totally Mm -hmm. agree. Well, I'm sure small business owners will find your perspective to be refreshing coming from an attorney, for sure. I hope so. One of my objectives is to really, um, I think, remedy some of the perceptions people have of attorneys and that they're difficult or scary or uh, whatever other obstacles people might have about engaging an attorney who really is there to help them. That's what an attorney exists for. It's to facilitate, to resolve, to solve, to mediate. And so my hope is that people will form a better impression and actually be excited about working with an attorney, not as a necessary evil, but as a necessary ally. Well, if people would like to reach out to you, how can they do that? Well, they can check out my law firm at um, www.wingspanlaw.com. They can email me directly at jen, J-E-N, at wingspanlaw.com. Or you can call me directly at 651-402-0923, and I'll be happy to talk with you. And we'll put the links to your website um, up on our show notes as well. Great. Thank you so much, Kimberly. Jen, thank you so much for being here today. And this has been an awesome conversation. It was my pleasure. Thanks for asking. next week for the Small Business Buzz when I caution you about setting up social media policies for your workers and what you need to know about so you don't get crosswise with free speech laws. We also visit with workplace mediator Anita Motolinia about relationship dynamics in family-owned businesses and how to work through conflict instead of around it. If you're in the Twin Cities area, I'll be a featured speaker at the Lake Home and Cabin Show at the Minneapolis Convention Center this weekend. That's February 6th, 7th, and 8th. Come by and see my talk at 3 p.m. today, 11 a.m. on Saturday, or 2 p.m. on Sunday. 
You can find links and other useful information on our show notes at thesmallbusinessbuzz.com and be sure to follow us on iTunes or Stitcher. If you're liking what you're hearing, please give us a good rating and maybe even leave a review. Of course, a lawyer would have a disclaimer, and here is mine. Any information provided on the show is for informational purposes only and is not intended as legal advice. The show theme music is Pioneers by Jason Shaw, released under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week.